Well, you know, God has recorded the examples of many godly women in the scriptures. And quite often on a day like today, on Mother's Day, we like to kind of take time out for a moment and look at one of those examples of the beauty of womanhood and how God has used women for his glory. You know, God has used a lot of men. God's raised up a lot of godly men who have been leaders and and he gives roles to men and women who are not exactly the same roles. But I think we need to recognize, too, how often God works through women. And even at the resurrection of our Lord, did you notice how prominent the women were at the tomb? How prominent the women were around the Lord Jesus? And how they were the ones who were proclaiming, you know, we saw him, he's alive! Well, here we have in the Old Testament this godly woman, Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Samuel, who was the last judge of the judge's era and a prophet of God. And, of course, there's two books of the Bible named for Samuel. Uh, Probably he didn't write them, although he may have contributed some of the uh, history of them. But... uh, Samuel was such a prominent and godly man, but he had a mother who influenced him for the Lord, who taught him and was faithful in ministering to him year in and year out. And so we know that Samuel was very thankful for his mother Hannah. As I mentioned, the backdrop of this passage is in chapter 1. And most of the time, you know, when we talk about Hannah, we spend the time looking at her husband and her rival and the perplexity that she felt. And, um, you know, we, we realize because of the perplexity that Hannah had, her faith was deepened because she was not able at first to have a baby of her own. And she was looking at her rival, you know, and, it, and it's not right that uh, El- Elkanah had a, a second wife, God allows those things, and they're recorded in Scripture, but it never says that God was in favor of that. But that's what happened. And so Hannah was perplexed, and her perplexity drove her faith deeper and deeper. Could it be possible today that something is going on in your life that is causing you to deepen your faith? And really, you know, we all have a choice. When God allows trials in our lives, we can either get bitter or we can get better. What's your choice today? You know, bitterness can creep in so subtly. And bitterness can do so much harm. And if you allow bitterness in your heart, it's, it's going to destroy you, you know? But... If we see God's hand behind the trials, the problems, the perplexities of life, and we call out to him, and we learn to depend on him. Remember, he's always wanting to get us to the place of complete dependence on him. That's where he wants you today. He wants you to say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you. And when you're in that place, then God has you right where he wants you, And he's going to work in and through you. 
And so because of Hannah's perplexity, her faith was deepened. And the result comes out for us here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, some clear insights into the nature of God. And you know, as you study Scripture and you realize you know, these, these ones that are recorded here, they didn't even have a Bible. You know, there was the law of God. But they didn't have their own copy of the, the Pentateuch, you know, to pull out in the morning and read. They would hear it taught, and they would memorize it, and they would chant it. But um, when you think about how things were taught in, those, in that day, and they didn't have all the advantages they didn't have copies of Scripture like we do. It's all the more amazing to see the, the truths and the lessons that God taught the people of that day. Now as we examine Hannah's prayer, and it starts off by saying, and Hannah prayed. So we know it's a prayer. But you know what? It's kind of written like a song. It's written in this poetic form. And I don't know if anyone has but probably someone might have even put music to this you know because it is that hebrew poetry style but four things stand out in this passage about the nature of god first of all salvation is only in the lord and she proclaims that in the very first verse salvation is only in the lord and then she moves to the holiness of god and she talks about how holiness comes only from the lord and that's verses two and three and then she, she states how life comes only from the Lord, and she gives these parallel uh, comparisons of how God works among the needy and the not-so-needy, among, among the blind and those who can see, and so on. And then finally, she makes a statement, and it's almost a subtle statement about faith, but how faith comes only from the Lord. If we look closely at this prayer, I believe we can find some things about the nature of God that are expanded upon in the New Testament. You know, we read our New Testament because it's so much more direct, it's so much more clear. But I want you to look with me at some of the truths that are almost hidden away in this prayer unless we look closely at it. And so that's what I want to do. So let's take the first verse. And my first thought, salvation is only in the Lord. Notice what she says. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. And so this is a prayer because she's addressing the Lord. And the main thought that she brings out here is she is exalting in worship of the Lord because she recognizes He is her salvation. Now you notice the word salvation there. And we shouldn't overlook that. She starts off by saying, My heart is exalting. Why is her heart exalting? Because her prayer was answered. Now remember her bitter prayer? Let's go back to chapter 1 for a moment. Going back to chapter 1, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, you know, but um, 
the chapter starts off with, I mean, this woman is really discouraged. She's really desperate. And, and she's going up to worship. And, and in 1 Samuel 1, verse 9, it says, After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose, and now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. How long do you think she had been praying this prayer? Once or twice? Maybe for a year? Longer? Well, all you have to do is read the context and find out, first of all, she is no doubt the first wife of Elkanah. And then, probably because they weren't having any kids, he took a second wife, and it says she had sons and daughters. It doesn't say how many, but plural of both. How long does it it take to have sons and daughters? It takes years, right? And so this has been going on in Hannah's life for years. I don't think it would be a stretch to say for 10 years. She's been praying, Lord, why not me? Lord, I want to have a child. Lord, why is it not happening? And you know... um, her husband was really a swift guy. He, uh, he says to her, aren't I better to you than ten sons? That was the wrong thing to say, you know. And it's easy to say the wrong thing. But uh, even Eli thought as he saw her praying that she was drunk and he rebukes her. And she says, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring out my soul to the Lord. Notice what it says down in in verse 15 of of chapter 1. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And you know the story. In due time, she has a child. Samuel comes. And chapter 1 goes on to tell how she waited till he was weaned, and then she took him and dedicated him to the Lord's service. Here, her firstborn son, and she says, okay, Lord, I'm going to keep my vow that I made. And she gives her son to Eli. And she'd come up once a year and bring him a new set of clothes and and some gifts. The good news is, later on in chapter 2, it says, God gave her more children. She bore three sons and two daughters, according to chapter 2, verse 21. And so God blessed her. And so this is why she could say in her prayer here in chapter 2, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. He had answered her prayer. This was the result of the birth of Samuel and then his dedication. And later on then, she would have more children 
And so God blessed her in that way. Hannah found strength in Yahweh. Hannah discovered victory over her enemies. What enemies do you think she might have been talking about? The rival wife, maybe, Peninnah, who was seeing how her husband favored Hannah, and yet she was the one having the kids, and so she felt... Can you see why God established marriage for one man and one woman? Bad idea here, you know? And yet how often that happens in the Old Testament. The Bible never, ever puts a stamp of approval on polygamy. And yet there are people who read the Bible and say, look, there's polygamy in there, it must be all right. No, it never does that. And of course, Jesus in the New Testament reestablished what God had done in Genesis 1 and 2. One man for one woman for the basis of marriage and the family. So salvation is only in the Lord. She's giving worship. When she says, my horn, remember a horn was the sign of strength. They would use horns for musical instruments, animal horns, but they would also use them as a picture of strength, of, you know, it was what uh, animals used to defend themselves, and so it was a picture of, of something strong. And so she's saying, my strength is in the Lord. He's like a horn to me, and later on, he's my rock. And so she's rejoicing in salvation. Now, is this salvation just deliverance from her bad situation of not able to have children when she wanted them? Or was she thinking deeper about life itself and about life after death? Well, let's read on and see what else she has to say in this very interesting prayer. Not only is salvation only in the Lord, but secondly, holiness comes only from the Lord. Notice verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord, and there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not your arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. She talks about the holiness of the Lord. Now, you know, we've been over this many, many times. Does holiness simply mean sinlessness? It doesn't. Uh, so, you know, I knew, I, I think growing up, you know, talking about holiness always in my mind sounded like sinless perfection. And that's not what it means. Now, is God sinless? Yes. But his holiness means that he is other. He's separate. There is no one who can be compared to him. And so in the New Testament, when the Lord says to us, and Peter quotes this, uh, be holy for I'm holy. God is not saying be sinless because I'm sinless. Even though that would be a great standard if we could reach it. But God never commands us to do something we cannot do. When he says to be holy, he wants us to be different for him. He wants us to be separate from all those who do not seek fully after the Lord. And so holiness is really otherness. Holiness is otherness. Holiness is being elite in a way that there's no, not even words to compare it. And so she's saying, our God is the only God. 
He alone is holy in character. All others are false gods. They're idols. They're nothing. And she goes on to say, there's no one that can be compared to you. There's no rock like our God. And you know, again, just like a horn was something strong, a sign of strength, a rock was something considered immovable and a picture of something that you can stand on and you're not going, it's not going to collapse under you. God is like my most mighty rock. And of course, Israel has lots of rocks to uh, use as object lessons. She goes on to say that God reduces the arrogant to insignificance. And again, who might she have been thinking of there? Maybe Panina again, who was very cruel to her, very mean. And they're, you know, in general too as well. There's ungodly people everywhere. But she had been hurt in her spirit. And she's saying, God is holy and he is the one who will lift the lowly up. He is my only hope. And he's the one who knows the hearts. He weighs all actions according to his perfect knowledge. Well, if holiness only comes from the Lord, and God wants us to be holy like he's holy, can we be holy exactly like God is? No, because there's God and there's everything else. There's God and there's creation. So God is the epitome of holiness. But we are to mimic God in the sense of we should not act like unsaved people. Should we? You know? I mean, people should look at us and think, wow, I don't know what that is, but that's different. And hopefully they don't think it's weird, you know? I hope they don't think it's disgusting. No, they should look at us and be attracted and maybe not able to explain why. How is this going to come out in real life? By our love for others, by our kindness, by our demeanor, by the way that we treat other people. That's... That's what's going to draw people to the Lord. And so holiness really is being like God because he is different. He is perfect and better and incomparable. He wants us to be like him as much as humanly possible. Well, Hannah didn't stop there. She says, I rejoice in your salvation, she says to the Lord. All my hope is in you my deliverance from my present trials, but my life itself. And she says, God, there's no God like you. You are holy. You are the only one. But thirdly, she says now, life comes only from the Lord. Salvation is from the Lord. Holiness is from the Lord. Life itself is from the Lord. And notice what she says in verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. She begins by making these comparisons. What are the bows? The bows are bows that you shoot an arrow with. And so the enemy, their bows are broken. Their their weapons are destroyed. But the feeble are the ones that bind on strength. Now, in normal speech and normal everyday life, this makes no sense. It's the mighty who are mighty, and it's the feeble who are feeble. And we don't expect the opposite, but for God entering into the picture. 
She goes on to say, Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. In other words, God can take a negative situation and flip it. The ones who have nothing to eat, when they trust God, will find satisfaction and even food itself in Him. Have you ever really been hungry? Has there ever been a time in your life where you didn't have money to buy food? I I think there's probably some stories we could probably tell of times Probably not too many times those of us in this room have really experienced hunger. But there might have been some times where, how are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to pay the rent? Or We don't have enough money to buy food. Have you ever been there? And yet, if you know the Lord, has the Lord really ever let you down where the answer did not come? You know, I can remember times when Diana and I, in seminary, we literally had like $1.39 in our checkbook. Why did we have a checkbook? I have no why. I mean, there's no money in there. What's the point of having it? But uh, there were many times where we just had no money, and yet God always provided for us. Have you ever had that experience? That's what she's talking about. God can take any situation and flip it. And, you know, there's been times maybe where you've been out of work and you're like, I don't know what's happening next. It's a great feeling when you don't know what's going to happen next, right? By the way, Diana and I don't know what's going to happen next. I've never retired before. I've, uh, now, Bob Sampson's getting to be an expert at it, you know. <laughs> but, you know... Uh, I have complete confidence that God knows what he's doing. And that's what Hannah is saying. Notice some other, other of these, um, these comparisons. Verse 5, or, or, or the last part of verse 5. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Wow, what does she mean by that? Well, first of all, she's not giving a personal testimony here because at this point she had only borne one child. And later on, according to verse 21, she had three more sons and two two more daughters. My math says that adds up to six. But uh, she's speaking in, you know, just general terms here. Seven being a perfect number and things like that. In other words... God can take someone who has no kids and give them seven. God can, on the other hand, those that are blessed with many children but don't realize the blessing that they have might be falling short in appreciation for for life itself. She says something amazing about life in verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. Is that true? Sounds a little bit harsh to say the Lord kills. But she's speaking of the sense that it's the Lord who controls life and death. Do you believe that? Is that true? Does that mean that God is not going to let anything happen to you 
until it's time for you to go home to be with him. Now, it doesn't mean that we should go, you know, strap ourselves to a railroad track and test God. Well, you know, pastor said nothing can happen. Or step out in front of a car or something like that. But, you know, even foolishness like that, God will not be defeated. There's nothing that we can do that God doesn't already have it figured out. And I know that raised a lot of questions. That raises maybe more questions than, than what we could answer today. But you know, God is a God who knows and He weighs actions. He gives and He takes life. You know how the Bible teaches conception is the beginning of life. You notice how the world doesn't seem to understand that? Did you see, it to, you know, this past week in the news, there's actually groups of people that are protesting Mother's Day and they're planning to go and disrupt church services across our country? There's people that do not want to celebrate Mother's Day. They want to celebrate their freedom to destroy life through abortion. And again, another controversial thing to, to think about, but we live in a culture that does not consider the sanctity of human life. It just doesn't. And of course, I'm sure you heard about the Supreme Court and, and Roe versus Wade, and they leaked the, what the judgment might be and what's the implications and and there's 20-some states that have already uh, made arrangements if that's changed what, what their law would be. And then there's others that are reacting. And, and you've got all this tension and upset. But what does God think about it? Conception is from the Lord. That's what the Bible teaches again and again. And that's what she's saying. The Lord gives life. He takes it away. And she even says another amazing thing. You see here, if we look closely at what she's saying, look at the truths that are buried away here in the Old Testament. The last part of verse 6, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. There is a verse in 1 Samuel 2 about the resurrection. What is Sheol? Well, Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. And in the Hebrew mind, the whole idea of life after death was not clearly developed. It's, you know how revelation in the Bible, what God, the truths that God revealed were progressively given bit by bit, piece by piece, over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, you know, Old Testament theology has a different amount of content than New Testament. The New Testament is built on the Old. New Testament doesn't make sense without the Old, but the Old has a lot of things that are hidden away, like this verse. How can we read this verse and not know that the Old Testament teaches life after death and resurrection? And that's exactly what she said. He brings down to Sheol the grave. Sheol was the place of all the dead. It didn't matter whether you were godly or ungodly. Sheol was just where dead people go, the grave. And of course, in Israel, most of the time they buried them above ground in caves and and rocky places and things like that. But the whole idea, of course, was that death is not the end, but it was not 
perfectly clear in their minds what all that meant other than God would do something about it. God would judge the evil and God would judge those who were right. And God would honor those who believe in him. And so that's what she's saying. The Lord delivers the dead and he resurrects to new life. She goes on in verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. In other words, whatever you have today is from the Lord. And he promises to take care of you. He tells us in Matthew chapter 6, don't worry about tomorrow. Just enjoy today. Trust me. That's what he's saying. And she's saying the same thing. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. To do what? To make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Where's that going to happen? Does that happen on earth? Do all the poor people of this earth rise up from the dust and become kings and princes? No. Where's it going to happen? It's going to happen life after death. Life beyond Sheol the grave. And there's coming a time when God is going to set up his kingdom and he's going to honor those who had very little in this life but trusted him. You see the truths that are coming out of this amazing prayer of Hannah? I mean, she's like a theologian. She should have been in seminary somewhere teaching everybody. You know? I mean, she's got insight here. Where did she get that? God gave it to her. Because she kept praying and seeking Him. And for a decade or more, her perplexity, Oh God, I'm not worth much because I can't have any kids. My husband loves me, but nothing's happening. Why, God? Don't you love me, God? What's wrong? What's wrong with me? Am I, in here? Am I inferior? And then finally the answer comes. And then she's able to have kids. Why does God do this? I don't know. Why does God do what he does? But he makes no mistakes. But during that time of perplexity, she got to know God in deeper ways. Meanwhile, Peninnah seems oblivious, you know? Could we be so caught up with the busyness of life that we don't spend any time in God's presence? She makes one more amazing statement of theology. Did you, did you see it? The end of verse 8? This is amazing. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. Now she's picturing, you know, the earth. She probably doesn't realize it's round. But the Bible does teach that. Remember Job talked about the circle of the earth. But she's just picturing terra firma, you know, and that this, this earth is solid, and it's God that's holding it up. And she's perfectly right. She's not talking about the cosmology of the, the planet. She's talking about the fact that the earth is controlled by God, the creator and sustainer of the universe. She has insight that we get much more clearly in the New Testament. Well, there's one more thought. We said that salvation is from the Lord, holiness is from the Lord, life itself is from the Lord, but there's one more thing here, and it's worth catching it. 
And please don't miss it. Faith comes only from the Lord. You might say, now, Pastor, where did you get that? I got it from the very beginning of verse 9. See if you get it. What does it say? What does it say in verse 9? He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Do you ever read scripture like this and go, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Oh, yeah, that's good. I like that. And you go on to the next thing. You don't even think about what it means. What does it mean? He will guard the feet. He will guard the feet? He's going to guard my feet? When God talks about feet, what is he talking about? Remember the story I told you about how my pastor said, boy, David, you have beautiful feet. No one ever told me that. In fact, I was born with a deformed foot, so nobody told me that. But you know what he was saying? How beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel of peace. Isaiah 55. And that's what he was teaching me. You're going to be a pastor, you have beautiful feet. And I'm like, oh, I better have good shoes then, I guess. I don't know, you know. But, but what does God mean when he says he will guard the feet of his faithful ones? It's talking about our steps every day. Do you like God to be with you every step of the way? That's what he's saying. And who are the faithful ones? The faithful ones are the ones who have faith. That's what, he's, what she's saying. Those who have faith will have God with them every step because he guards their feet. That's amazing. The Lord guards the feet of his faithful ones. This is what this is really saying is faith comes from the Lord. Those who have faith, God is with them, and he will not let you down. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. See the contrast? And so it's, contrasting those who are saved because of faith here we have salvation by faith alone hidden away in first samuel 2 9 she goes on to say for not by might shall a man prevail not by works shall any man boast is the way paul put it you see that we've got ephesians 2 8 and 9 right here in first samuel 2 9 he will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Salvation is by faith. God will be with you every step. Meanwhile, he's going to punish those who are wicked, who don't believe, because you can't do it on your own. And then she expands on it in verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Sounds like the judgment of Isaiah all over again. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Before she gets done, she brings in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how subtle that is? Did you see Jesus' name in there? It's there. What is anointed? It's Mashiach, Messiah. It's Christos in the Greek New Testament. She says, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. Who's the king? It's going to be the son of David, Jesus Christ, and exalt the horn of his anointed. That is Messiah Jesus. 
You see, faith comes only from the Lord. He guards the feet of his faithful ones. He cuts off the wicked in darkness. Salvation is not by human effort. The Lord's going to judge his adversaries. He's going to judge the entire earth. And he's going to exalt his king, our Lord Jesus Christ. All that is in Hannah's prayer. Is that not awesome? What about some life lessons? Let's go to that. Hannah recognized Yahweh, the God of Israel, as her only Savior. And so I ask you today, do you know Hannah's God? Hannah's God is Yahweh, and we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father sent the Son to be our Savior. The Son sent the Spirit to indwell us today. Secondly, God is holy because he is the one and only true God. He is separate from all other comparisons. And he commands us to be holy in the sense that we are to be different for him. Are you different? Do your neighbors look at you and say, I know that person's a believer, or that person's a Christian, or that person's, you know, they'll put it in different terms depending on their, their religious, or they're a religious nut maybe, you know? <laughs> that's okay as long as we're walking with the Lord number three we know our creator as God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit he alone is the author and the source of all life and Hannah taught that he holds the world in his hand do you believe it? does that encourage you today? when you hear all the bad news and all the bad stuff going on in the world And you come back and say, but my God is in control. And he's going to work his plan. And he will not be defeated. The only human response that the Lord honors is faith. Isn't that amazing? He just wants us to say, Lord, I believe you. I'm trusting you. But for some people, that's so hard to say. They just can't do it. And so I ask you, does he know you? Do you know him? I'm very thankful today for a godly example like Hannah. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and grace to us and for this time that we've been able to look into your word and hear what a godly woman spoke back to you, the truths that are dear to us today. May we trust you more and more every day. As we approach your table now, Lord, may we do it with confidence and joy, humility and reverence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.